From activism to entertainment, health to nightlife, profiles and courage to travel, and so much more. This is the Jeff Hawker Show, LGBTQ news and lifestyle conversation for the Coachella Valley region. Here's Jeff Hawker. Hello and welcome to the show today. We have a an incredible guest on the show today who is going to give her opinion. She's going to talk about her life and she's really um you know a great activist who who, who has spent her life um serving in the military and uh the National Guard. I want to welcome to the show Dr. Greta Kamemeyer, Colonel US Army. How are you doing? Just fine, thank you. Um, you have an interesting spelling to your name because um, you were actually born in Oslo, Norway. That's right. And uh, so my real name is Margareta. Uh Not easy to translate. So I went by the nickname that I had in Norway, uh, which was Greta, and then Americanized becomes Greta, but I've spelled it the old way. Yeah, and and you have dual citizenship, correct? I'm working on it. I uh, just just applied last summer. Uh, Norway has just uh, sort of opened it up so you could have dual citizenship. I gave up my Norwegian citizenship at 18 uh, when um, I was old enough to determine for myself uh, whether to become an American citizen or Norwegian. But there's something exciting about the thought of having dual citizenship and sort of reclaiming my roots in a way. Uh, So I'm waiting to hear. (laughs) Well, it makes it much easier to go back and forth as well. And if you've got citizenship there, you can stay as long as you want. Uh, And uh, particularly during the last administration. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So um, let's talk a little bit about your, you know, your upbringing. You received a, um, a Bachelor of Science in Nursing and you went to the University of Maryland. Um, how did you end up going to Washington? Did, were, were you, when you were a young kid, did you come to the United States and then you, you moved? Well, uh, if, we, if we go way back, my father was the first Norwegian to receive the Rockefeller Fellowship after the war. And uh, so we came from Norway to Boston nine months and then returned back to Norway at which time uh, he continued his uh, neuropathology research, and then uh, he was invited to come to the United States and work in Washington, D.C. at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, continuing to do, uh, to do research uh, there. And then later he moved to the National Institutes of Health. And, of course, I came to the United States with my family then, and uh, therefore raised in the greater Washington, D.C. area, and therefore went to the University of Maryland. Wow, fantastic. And, and, you know, I'm always in awe of people who have, you know, gotten advanced degrees. You have a master's degree, which you got in 1976, and then you got a Ph.D. in 1991. What is your Ph.D. in? Well, it's in nursing science with a specialty in um, neuro. Uh, my uh, my dissertation work had to do with sleep apnea and the effect of sleep apnea on uh, mental processing of co- cognition. 
and looking at whether that was because of the apnea or because of people's oxygen level dropping. And uh, so that was an interesting study because it was, uh, you know, in 1991, before much had been known about the impact of sleep apnea on uh, on, on sort of human physiology and functioning and things. And so it was sort of the beginning before sleep apnea became, or, or sleep labs became part of, of hospitals and clinical practice, which it is today. Well, it's a study that affects a lot of people as well. I mean, you really were involved in in something that, you know, a lot of people have issues with. And if you can kind of delve deep into that, it can really kind of change their psyche. Oh, you know, if, if you can stay awake during the daytime and function, it means that you can stay awake and function. And so uh, for a long time, you know, people would just be falling asleep during the daytime or driving, and they were presumed to either be on drugs or not attentive or things like that, when it really was a physiological response to uh, poor sleep as a result of the apneic episodes. I always like to hear about people's family. So you have four sons, which in itself must have been both gratifying and a challenge because I know I have an older brother and I know how we get along. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I had four sons. Uh, one was killed uh, about 14 years ago. And, you know, that sort of affects the whole family dynamic. Uh, but uh, my other three sons who, are, you know, are here with their families, you know, we have we have them to enjoy as well as 11 grandchildren. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so and any hopes for really, any great-grandchildren? Hey, don't, don't rush. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, did, what did the grandchildren call you? Bestemur, uh, B-E-S-T-E-M-O-R, which means the best mother, which, oh. of course, is oh, that's always what grandparents are. <laughs> and... Yeah, so, uh, and my spouse, Diane, whom they have also known all of their lives, she is called Besta Dud, uh, because years ago, uh, when we first met, she decided that she was not going to play Pictionary with my, my kids, and she said, I'm just a dud, and which they just picked up on immediately, and so they, from then on, called her Dud, and therefore it's only appropriate that she is now, as a grandparent, is best a Dud. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. Uh, do you, do this you, is more in, more information that you that you needed. No, it's it's fascinating. That that's why we do these shows, and that's why I wanted to have you on for the whole hour, so we could really get insight into your life and your love. And uh, you know, Diane obviously is the love of your life. You were able to marry, um, but John tells me that there was a little difficulty. W- was your marriage reversed because of the laws? Well. Early on, as soon as Oregon uh, opened up that window before uh, marriage equality took place, uh, Oregon had allowed a, uh, individuals to, to get married. And so we eloped and went from Seattle to Portland 
and got married in that brief uh, period of time. And a, a year later, received notification from the Oregon Supreme Court that our marriage was nullified. And so they sent us back our money, uh, but we still felt very married. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was still not quite the same. It was extremely disappointing. And then, uh, of course, as soon as marriage equality was uh, permitted, then we did the real thing and got married the first date that we could here in Washington State on the 9th of December. And uh, so that was sort of the rest of the story. But, you know, we we think of our relationship as going back to when we first met, which is now almost 33 years ago. Wow. You know, when marriage, when they were really starting to push, uh, actually, Jim Ogilvie is uh, a friend of mine, when they really were pushing the uh, Marriage Equality Act, there was a lot of discontent among the LGBT community about, you know, this might not be the right direction to go. I mean, what do you think during that time, and were you active in the fight? Well, I was, uh, you know, because of the military, it, it was a very natural thing for me to to at least give my two cents worth. But, uh, you know, part of when you can't have something and you make up a reason why you don't want it anyhow. You know, if you look at a big house and you say, gee, think of all the windows you have to wash or or think of uh, of the cost of keeping it. And it's like, well, I wouldn't want that house anyhow. <laughs> uh, and and so, you know, it was not wanting to act and be like heterosexuals and, and getting married. And yet when we look at the social ramifications of not having equality, of not having the opportunity to see someone in a hospital or help make decisions or that sort of thing. It has a huge impact, but, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it, you play mind games with yourself. Right. It, you know, that was especially important during the AIDS epidemic in that, you know, there was so many people that could not go into hospital rooms, could not visit their partner because they had no rights. Uh, very similar to what we experienced during COVID, but it was different in that you couldn't be- go in because they were afraid you were going to contract the virus. But back then, in the very beginning, they didn't know how HIV was contracted, so they were all very worried about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if you're married to somebody, you don't care how sick they are, you're, you you want to be next to them. Maybe. <laughs> so you know, you know if you think of somebody with measles the last thing you want to do is to be near them that's true i forget well, i'm talking I, I to a nurse <laughs> yeah and i guess you'd say the same thing about you know when somebody has covid no matter how much you care for them and love them the thought of being in the room with them you know puts you at risk also and is is your life worth it yeah um, tell me a little bit about Diane that you would want our listeners to know. Diane is unique. Uh, she, uh, I, I wrote a song about our relationship called The Tortoise and the Hare. And it's really because I, I'm, I'm still, you know, military. I moved forward and I don't do a lot of marching in place. Diane has always... Uh, gone at her own pace 
and will always be the last one to get on any bus, the last person to do anything, because she takes everything in and absorbs, you know, the culture and the, you know, there's a there's a, a little shop around that has uh, cultural trinkets or things like that. She will want to see what's there. She is the kindest, most supportive um, person that obviously I have ever met. And, you know, if you think about uh, the years early on in our relationship when we had to go through the, the scrutiny, the military business with my discharge, with uh, having to be public um, in terms of our relationship at, at a time when being homosexual was sort of frowned upon because it was coming right out of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and she's an artist and a teacher, and we had a marvelous relationship. It, it's great hearing that about your relationship with your wife, Diane. When we come back, of course, we'll get into the whole topic about 1989 when, um, during a routine security clearance, uh, the word lesbian came out. We'll find out the whole story, all the ins and outs, and we'll also talk about. Serving in Silence, your autobiography. You're listening to The Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio, and we'll be back with Dr. Greta Kamamara. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. The Jeff Hawker Show, casting a brilliant rainbow of diversity on iHub Radio. Now, here's Jeff. We are honored today to have Dr. Greta Kammermeyer. She was a colonel in the U.S. Army. She is now retired. Um, you had a distinguished 26-year military career, but in 1989, everything changed. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I wouldn't say that I had a that my career wasn't distinguished after that. It was just that the military didn't want me anymore. Uh, yeah. I was uh, I was seeking a top secret clearance. I wanted to be competitive and to apply for the War College, and then hoping to go to Washington D.C. and you know be a general. And that had been sort of my delusion of grandeur, my uh, whole career. And uh, during the investigation, I uh, said that I was a lesbian, uh, to which uh, there was a reaction uh, of, uh, oh, goody, we've got a live one. And um, so that was sort of the beginning of the end of my career, because homosexuality was considered incompatible with military service. Uh, I have a dog. which which I always find that very unimaginable because we know that so many people through hundreds of years in the U.S. have served honorably as gay people, but nobody knew. Well, and even when they knew, if it was convenient uh, for the individual to remain in the military, then they would. 
uh, be allowed to be retained. So it was uh, sort of a, uh, a red herring to begin with. But, you know, for, for me, six months later, I was told that the military was going to discharge me. And I did not want to resign. I mean, I had already served 25, 26 years um, and uh, chose to challenge my discharge rather than to resign with dignity. And uh, my, my unit was extremely supportive of me staying on as long as it didn't become disruptive. In other words, as long as nobody knew. And, yeah, thank uh, you. <laughs> so, well, in the beginning, there were only four people that knew. Uh, and it wasn't until my hearing two years later, because it took two years for them to uh, sort of force my commanders uh, to move forward with my uh, hearing and then ultimate discharge. They didn't want me to go. I didn't want to go. I was an asset. And why would you discharge an asset? I was chief nurse of the Washington State National Guard. I was chief nurse of a, a hospital unit. We were building it up for potential mobilization. And so it just made no sense to move forward until my commander was told by uh, 6th Army, which is the higher headquarters, that uh, if he didn't start dis- discharge proceedings against me, that they would start discharge proceedings against him. And so that was oh. uh, not such a, a, a good thing. And, uh, you know, if I can just digress for a moment. Uh, currently, in the film festivals going on around the world, there is a movie called uh, uh, Surviving the Silence uh, being aired by uh, Patsy, uh, well, it, it's, it's featured Patsy Thompson, who was the president of my board that discharged me. And she just happened to be a lesbian. And this is her story and how it interfaced with my story and my discharge. So the, the curious thing now is that it's, it's circulating around the film, uh, the, the film festivals, and we're, we're doing interviews uh you know quite frequently with as that's being shared but i didn't know at the time any of this uh and so when my case went moved forward and the military then was going to discharge me i had a military board uh of which patsy thompson was the president of the board and ultimately they discharged me uh, and or said that my federal recognition, which meant that I could remain in the military, was going to be withdrawn because of my statement that I was a homosexual. And uh, that sort of resulted then in uh, Randy Schiltz uh, doing an article about my discharge and everything in the San Francisco Chronicle, and then ultimately that that was picked up by uh, Barbara Streisand, who uh, contacted me and uh, said, and then we, I flew down with my attorney, and she said, wouldn't you like to have your life story told to 25 million people 
uh, on television, and I said, no, not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Well, and, and during this whole process, I'm sure you had, you know, very in-depth conversations with Diane. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, how is it going to affect my, our life and everything? Yeah. Well, it was more that she was my backbone for all of all of this and support. We're talking with Dr. Greta Kammermeyer, a colonel for the U.S. Army, retired. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about serving in silence. It's her autobiography that came out in 1994. And then we'll talk more about a variety of topics, including Don't Ask, Don't Tell. You're listening to The Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. Live from Palm Springs, the Desert Cities A to Z on LGBTQ. This is the Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. We're in discussion today with Dr. Greta Kammermeyer. Before the break, we were just starting to talk about you were contacted by Barbara Streisand um, to come down to L.A. to talk about. Had you already written your book, which came out in 1994? Uh, the book was just finishing up. Uh, uh, Chris Fisher, who co-wrote with me, was um, she'd been working on it about uh, 18 months. So it was uh, just about ready to go and became available to Alison Cross, who did the uh, screenplay for the movie Serving in Silence. So they all were sort of juxtapositioned on one another and of course the irony was that uh, the book had come out and uh, then I was reinstated in the military and the judge said uh, you know uh, Dr. Kammermeyer you are now governed under don't ask don't tell meaning that I couldn't tell anybody that I was a lesbian, but my book was coming out. And, and <laughs> a little late. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so there was this irony. And then, of course, in the local papers and also the local military papers says, you know, lesbian colonel returns to the military, but nobody is supposed to know. So. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was in 1994, Judge Thomas Zilli of, of the United States District Court for the Western District of Washington ruled that your discharge and the ban on gays and lesbians serving in the military was unconstitutional, which did fall under the don't ask, don't tell. No, this was prior to, this was just prior to the don't ask, don't tell. Okay. Because because the discussion was taking place about, um, well, let's step back just a moment. Uh, While my case was in the public eye, uh, and I was being discharged, Bill Clinton was candidate for president. Right. And, uh, and part of the discussion then with him publicly was, would you overturn the ban against gays serving in the military? And he said, yes, he would. And then when he won uh, the election, then he returned to Washington then in 93, where, you know, the shit hit the fan, and uh, about the repeal of the ban 
uh, or the regulation governing uh, homosexuals serving in the military. And then there was a six-month moratorium uh, and a lot of lobbying effort by lots of people to try to uh, change the, the policy as it existed. And in its place came Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So, and, and what I, do you think about that policy? Well, it's, it, you know, let us take your blood, but you better keep quiet about uh, your, your personal life. I mean, it, it was untenable. And during yeah. those 17, you know, during the 17 years that that, uh, that law was in place, more than 14,000 individuals were still discharged from the military because of uh, their sexual orientation. So it did nothing but, you know, cause havoc for the gays and lesbians serving in the military, which is why the repeal was so important to the day-to-day lives of gays and lesbians uh, serving in the military. And uh, I happen to be part of a a committee called DACOWITS, the uh, Defense Department's uh, uh, Committee on Women in the Service. And we ended up going around and uh, talking to people at various military posts. And uh, I would ask, I said, what did the... Uh, what did the lifting of uh, or the, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell do uh, to military cohesion and everything? And they said nothing. It did nothing at all. And I, I said, well, you know, unless it applies to you, it may do nothing, which is what we've been saying all along. But if you're gay and, or lesbian and you uh, no longer have to worry about being blackmailed or being harassed or that you're going to lose your job because of your sexual orientation, it means a great deal. And uh, so, I mean, I guess I guess I covered everything under the sun in that <laughs> in that paragraph, but it, it was it was a horrible, horrible rule. Let me ask uh, you law. this: What made you go into the military in the beginning? Why did you want to do it? Well, I was an Im- part of an immigrant family, um, and that had sort of been taken in by the United States. And at first, I wanted to give something back to my uh, adopted country. And the second part was that I was a nurse. And in those days, nursing was sort of considered kowtowing to the physicians and having to stand when a physician walked in the room and all of this nonsense. And so uh, for me, it was doing something that was meaningful as a nurse. And so the military afforded me that opportunity, both on active duty and then later in the reserves and National Guard. I mean, I spent 14 months in Vietnam, uh, which is where, you know, as an Army nurse, it's where I felt I, I should be. Boy, you must have seen everything over there being a nurse. Well, we saw a lot of a lot of tragedy, to say the least, and yeah. a lot of loss of lives and humanity. What what lifted you up during that time to keep you going? In in Vietnam or in the army? Yeah, or in Vietnam. My, uh, I I think knowing that we were helping Americans that were in desperate need. Uh, but you know, on hindsight, you know, I went back to Vietnam. 
in 2019 with an organization called Peace Trees Vietnam. And what I saw and what I heard and what I've read since about, you know, what the hell were we doing there? Uh, and the atrocities committed in our name uh, on the Vietnamese was absolutely, you know, undescribable and, uh, you know, sort of makes me ashamed that I was so ignorant yeah. of, of, of all of that. And yet, you know, you can't relive the past any more than you already do. So it's, uh, you know, there is nobody that wins at war. Right. And we, we ought to have learned that by now. Well, and, and this week is Yom HaShoah, you know, which is Holocaust Remembrance. And, you know, one of the slogans is never again. You know, we, we have to make sure that we educate our youth and let them know that we can't continue to have these genocides in the world. Well, look in any city right now. We say never again, but... You know, there is there is no such thing as never again because we keep falling prey to uh, our our worst instincts uh, in terms of you know we're better than somebody else or we know better than somebody else or it's you know our way or the highway. I mean, it's 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 just frightening uh, about and I and I think part of the past four years has just perpetuated all of that. Uh, so much that, you know, you become paranoid at, you know, walking out of your own home. Yeah, I I don't know how we made it through the last four years, (laughs) you know, but we came out on the other side and, you know, there's a ray of hope everywhere we go now. Um, So I got all of the, it just, it makes your head spin (laughs) when you see all the different policies that the military has had in regards to gays and lesbians in the military, a, a question: it, Did to be kicked out of the military? Did you have to act on being a homosexual, or was it just they they became knowledgeable that you were? And no, how and they, how did they prove it? The the law at the time was that if you state that you are homosexual then that statement is action. And therefore, you are discharged. And so it was purely my statement to, um, uh, or during the time of my top secret investigation, uh, or the investigator, uh, that that statement was sufficient. And, you know, I had ample opportunity to recant. Um, They kept on you know, everybody that I was working with who knew uh, wanted me to just say, well, you know, I, I didn't really mean it. Um, and uh, so I felt because I had met Diane uh, about six months before, I recognized that uh, that was really who I am uh, and or who I was and who I am. And uh, so I wasn't going to deny that. I was not going to set myself up to be blackmailed, and I was not going to lie. And, uh, you know, this is all also based on a couple of other things. Uh, When I first joined the military, I was married. I I got married to a man. Uh, We ended up having children. And because of having children, I was forced to leave the military. People uh, in the military... 
fought for a change in that policy so women could remain in the service and uh, have children. And so it seemed to me that this was now uh, my opportunity 20 years later to take a stand and try to change the existing anti-homosexual policy. And they couldn't say I was bad for morale and discipline because I wasn't. They couldn't say that I wouldn't serve with distinction because I did. So that all of the rhetoric that had been used against younger people of why they couldn't remain in the military was no longer valid. So I, in my delusion of grandeur, thought, well, of course they're going to change the policy, which they didn't at that time. (laughs) But I was discharged, and I won reinstatement prior to the Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and then continued to serve after I won, uh, even though everybody knew that I was uh, a lesbian, but it was like a non-issue which it was when um, the Don't Ask, Don't Tell was overturned. It was a non-issue because we were already there. Yeah. Uh, And it just meant that people could serve with uh, their personal integrity and not feel threatened. Well, and thank goodness we live on the West Coast. I mean, (laughs) so many people across the country suffer every day in silence in many, many jobs. And we're, we're lucky in Washington, Oregon, and California that we've got a lot of laws now protecting LGBTQ people. Yes. Now, you talk about serving in distinction. Um, you are the recipient of the Bronze Star. Can you explain to us what that is? Well, it's, it's an award that is given for distinguished service. Uh, You can either get it for service or uh, uh, under combat conditions, under hostile hostile fire. I got mine as a result of service and that, you know, I was nominated for it and I I was awarded it. And uh, I'm, of course, very proud of that. But, uh, you know, it's another ribbon on your on your lapel. Exactly. When we come back, we'll talk more with Dr. Greta Kammermeyer. Uh, we'll talk about serving in silence and how um, there is updated versions of the book, as well as I understand that Greta's wife, Diane, is very involved with the music scene, and you wrote a song about Diane. So we'll find out all about that when we come back. You're listening to The Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. The Jeff Hawker Show, casting a brilliant rainbow of diversity on iHub Radio. Now, here's Jeff. We are in conversation with Dr. Greta Kammermeyer. She was a colonel in the U.S. Army. Um, speaking of accolades that you've gotten, the University of Washington honored you with the 2015 Distinguished Alumni Veterans Award. And then again, in 2016, you get the Leonard Matlovich Award from the American Veterans for Equal Rights. 
inducting you into the Washington State Nurses Hall of Fame. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just always like talking about people's accolades because when when you look at what you've done in your life, it pulls it all together and you say, wow, there was a reason why I did that and why I made that decision. And you've no, made... No, 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 no. You don't make decisions for anything that you do in their life, your life for an accolade. You make the decision based on uh, your principles and your uh, value system uh, and... Uh, at least from my take, never on what might be acknowledged in the future. Yeah, that's uh, what I meant. I meant that you weren't trying to get the accolades, but you you have lived your life authentically. And, you know, that's kind of a buzz phrase now. But back then, you said, I am going to do this. I am going to live authentic. I'm going to be honest. And that made a difference for a lot well, of people. It, yeah. Uh, it did, and you don't always know what that difference is. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate in that uh, sometimes people have told me that it's made a difference. Uh, at the signing ceremony of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, someone came up and said, you know, because of your efforts and the efforts of everyone else, I no longer have to choose between the love of my life and my my career and my job, uh, which which sort of is a vindication. Uh, I've had friends who have, since the repeal, become generals. That uh, you know was my aspiration long ago, but uh, it was sort of yes, you know, it did make a difference in their life. And and I think most most significant uh, to me is that uh, my grandson, one of my grandsons, uh, was playing on a baseball team and his uh, uh, one of his uh, classmates and also, um, you know, individual on the ball team uh, had been teased because he was gay and his, uh, or they thought that he was gay. And my grandson said to him, you know, you can be my buddy and we can share a room any time we're traveling. And he supported his uh, teammate. And later, his mother said to my grandson's mom, my daughter-in-law, he said that his, his support of this young man saved his life because he mm-hmm. was contemplating suicide. Yep. And you think, you know, and and that's what living our truth uh, meant to my grandson, who realized that, you know, we are no different, only better than some other grandparents around. So, uh, you know, those sorts of of affirmations about the effect of living your truth, Mm -hmm. uh, really, uh, you know, what more could you possibly ask for? Yeah. Well, and it's just so great you can have that experience with, you know, your grandchildren and your children, uh, you know, and they can gain all the wealth of your knowledge. Um, so in a couple minutes that we have left, um, John tells me that you're very involved with the women's music scene. Um, so I would love to know about that. I know you've had a couple little festivals at your house 
and uh, and, and then tell us a little uh, bit about the song you wrote for Diane. Yeah, so uh, the, the music scene is one that's created here at our house. This will be the 10th year that Trek Fury will be coming to do a boot camp. Uh, and we'll be uh, working with about 15 of us in songwriting. And uh, so uh, one, uh, you know, one of the things that happens when uh, you, you, you think you are just so marvelous in uh, creating songs and music is that you begin to write about your life. And so the one, uh, and it's on my website, uh, there are several songs there, but the one about Diane, uh, I'm not going to sing it, but I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you what the, I'll tell you what the, uh, the chorus is. It's, uh, so I wake with you beside me, feel the calm of the day. You're never in a rush, no matter what I say. The car is of running, dogs are in place. The only thing missing is for you to show your face. How is it that we manage like a tortoise and a hare? Somehow we always seem to get there. Uh, and that sort of is, and, and you know, John knows us. And so that really, I think, exemplifies our relationship in a nutshell. Well, and again, the title of the song is Tortoise and the Hare. Have you recorded it well for me and uh you know and it's it's on the website you can you can hear it okay hear it there but uh you know it's it's fun because you sort of make up stories about your own experiences and about life and there's a couple there about um what how we survived the trump uh administration and uh you know so now it's moving on with what the renewal of a positive way of living that uh, we will be experiencing as we continue forward. And, you know, on the 31st or, or the 30th of this month, uh, it will be totally open trans service uh, members also. So it will be a full circle. And, uh, you know, what started with my efforts and thousands of others who worked in lobbying to overturn the anti-gay policy uh, regulation and then law uh, now is inclusive of trans service so that's exciting what would we need to do to like end all of this for all time i mean what kind of policy would have to come come through or law uh yeah i, th I think i think that there has to be a law uh so that uh, the trans service members are as protected as gay service uh, with the repeal, uh, just open service for gays and lesbians, that needs to be open service as part of the law uh, for uh, trans service members also. So you can't just have a knee-jerk executive order based on somebody's bias. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Kamemeyer, you, you're an inspiration to me. You have been in my life and inspiration to so many people. And I know John is grateful for you coming on today, as I am. I can't wait to meet you and Diane. We're going to come up to your house in, in Washington. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for coming on the show today and bless life to you and your family. Uh, well, if, thank you, Jackson. You're quite welcome. Thank you. If you want more information about all the programs on iHub Radio, go to iHubRadio.com. You've been listening to The Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio.